Well, as we begin today, I should probably introduce myself to y'all. My name is Roger Poupard, and I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, I've been away for a couple of weeks uh, dealing with my dad's affairs. Uh, Many of you know that he went home to be with the Lord, and then uh, we took a little family vacation up to Glorieta, New Mexico, to escape a little bit of the heat of Texas. And then I came home and caught up on honey-do lists, like rebuilding the deck and uh, cutting down trees, all those things you can't do in your normal Uh, schedule. And I also was working on the book of James, which I invite you to turn to in your Bibles today. We're going to be starting a series today going through the book of James. It's near the back of the New Testament. Uh, It's past the book of Hebrews. If you come into first and second Peter, you've gone too far. So turn back. Now, while James is located near the back of our Bibles, it's actually the first of the New Testament books that was written somewhere around uh, AD 45. And this early date is why we don't see things mentioned in the book of James. Some of the things like uh, what took place in the Jerusalem Council around A.D. 49, where there was the issue going on in the early church about whether or not Gentiles needed to keep parts of the law, like being circumcised as they came to Christ. Uh, also absent in James is, is a lot of things that we would term Christology. Christology is the teaching of who Jesus is or what he did. And the reason that we don't find uh, James covering anything in this area is because being written around 45 AD when Jesus Christ was crucified and resurrected and ascended into heaven somewhere between 33 and 37 AD means that this book was written within 10 to 15 years after Jesus walked the earth, which means that many of the readers were eyewitnesses to the events themselves or at least knew those who had personal firsthand knowledge of who Jesus is and what he said and taught. And so James doesn't need to lay this foundation. Now, when it comes to having firsthand knowledge, it would be hard to find anyone who had a greater firsthand knowledge of Jesus Christ than James. Because James was one of the half-brothers of Jesus. Uh, I say half-brothers. The text will tell us he is a brother of Jesus as you look at Galatians 1.19 where it calls him the Lord's brother. But he and Jesus shared Mary as their biological mother. But as we know from the scriptures, Jesus Christ uh, was conceived through the Holy Spirit. So Joseph, the earthly father, was simply a stepdad, a stand-in for Jesus. But he was the biological father for for, Jesus. James, as well as three other half-brothers, one of which was named Jude, who wrote the New Testament book of Jude. There were also several sisters. We find these things mentioned in Matthew chapter 13 and verses 55 through 56 and Mark 6, 3, where it says that Jesus had four half-brothers. And as they are listed, James is first in both passages, showing he was the oldest of the brothers of Jesus Christ. Now, in the New Testament, there are other men named James. It was a a popular name in that day. And some say that a possible author of the book of James would be James, the son of Zebedee. James, the son of Zebedee, and his other brother uh, were called the sons of thunder. John and James were called the sons of thunder and were apostles of Jesus Christ. But we know that this is not the author of the book of James because as you look in the scriptures, it tells us in Acts chapter 2 and verse, uh, tw- chapter 12, verse 2, that that James was martyred under Herod Agrippa I. So that James, one of the apostles who was the first to be martyred of the original 12, was not the author. It was James. 
the half-brother of Jesus. Now, uh, this is very significant because you'll remember that James and his other siblings were not believing in Jesus initially. Uh, we're told in John 7, 5 that not even his brothers were believing in him. And Mark three twenty one says they went out to take custody of him because they thought he had lost his senses. Um, but all this changed in 1 Corinthians fifteen seven, where we see that after James was crucified and rose from the dead, that Jesus appeared, it says, personally to James. And once James saw Jesus in his risen form, he realized he was indeed the Son of God the promised Messiah, and he became not only a believer in Jesus Christ, but a leader in the early church. He was the leader of the church in Jerusalem. He was at ground zero of the persecution taking place. You'll recall that uh, during this time, Rome was in power. They were the foreign government occupying, and they were trying to snuff out the early Christians. The Jews themselves were trying to snuff out Christianity because the Jewish leaders were trying to hold on to power. And there was a great persecution taking place. This was called the diaspora. And that word means the scattering. And it was used to describe how the early church, the believers in Christ, as well as some of the Jews, were being scattered because of the persecution. And this word was actually used of a farmer going out sowing seeds in a field. And though those were very difficult times, God was using the diaspora to scatter his people and his message to far-flung fields of harvest. And so this is the background that is taking place with the book of James. James was one, as I said, who came to faith in Christ. And so strong was James' faith that he eventually would be martyred himself. He was given the opportunity to deny that Jesus was the promised Messiah, the Christ. And he refused, and he was taken to the pinnacle of the temple, and he was thrown off. And as his body hit the ground, he was beaten and stoned, and uh, he gave his life. He was known for his faithfulness, not just by giving his life, but he had the nickname of Camel Knees. And James was called Camel Knees because he was so devout in his prayer life. He would, he would kneel in prayer so many hours during the day that he developed calluses on his knees. And so this is why he had this name. Another nickname of James was James the Just. And it was because of his concern and his care for others. And so these are the backgrounds behind this man that we're reading about. In Galatians 2.9, we're told that James was a pillar in the church. Now, as you think of all those things, think of the way that this letter could have begun. As we read the opening verse here in James 1.1, 1, 1, uh, it could have said something like, from James the Just, pastor of the first Christian church in the world, brother, oldest brother of Jesus, the incarnate Son of God. And yet as we read his greeting here, there are no ego-inflating titles. It simply says, James, a bondservant of God, and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes who are dispersed abroad, greetings. You see, James was so well known in the early church, he didn't have to mention his position. He didn't have to mention his apostleship. He didn't have to pull rank about his family relation or anything. All he simply said was, I have the title of a servant. The word is a bond servant, one who has given their life to the service of the Lord. And he calls Jesus, he uses the, the full title for Jesus. He says, the Lord Jesus Christ. It shows the co-equality of Jesus Christ, his deity, 
And as he writes, he says, I'm writing to those of you who are scattered. These are the the people scattered by the persecution, as I mentioned. The church at this point was primarily made up of Jews who had become what we term completed or Messianic Jews who understood that Jesus was the Messiah. We hear the title Christ, and some people think it's his last name. But the, the word Christ means the Messiah, the promised one. And so what James is saying to those who are of the Jewish background who have come to faith in the promised Messiah, those of you who are of the 12 tribes of Israel, those of you who are Jews who are scattered abroad by the persecution, he says, greeting. And James 2, 2, when he speaks of the assembly, he will use the Greek word synagogue, again showing the Jewish nature of the the primary audience. Now, I'm giving all of this background to you because not only are we beginning this book, and it's helpful to know the setting, but by knowing the setting, by knowing who the audience is, by knowing the context of what is taking place, the book of James will make much more sense to us. You see, the book of James is one that many people have been confused by because there's a debate as to whether or not this uh, gospel, this epistle is contradicting the gospel of grace, that salvation is by grace alone through faith and not by works. And what people sometimes forget as they study the book of James is they forget who was it written to and why was it written? What was the context in the audience? Being a predominantly Jewish audience, remember, these were observant Jews who were raised their whole life following the law, of which there were 613 commandments. And so as James, a Jew himself, writes to other Jews who had been observing the law, when we find a book where there are 54 commands, the Greek term is an imperative, they are commands. And in 108 verses, there are 54 commands, and people go, wow, this is a book all about just doing. But for the Jew, this was the teaching style they were used to. It's not that the Jew was being called to go back under the law and to be saved through their works. As we go deeper into the book of James, we'll talk in depth about this. But what we find is this is a book not teaching the law, but it is a book that is teaching just as a hand goes into a glove that the two are connected. It's that grace goes hand in glove with a walk that reflects our changed life. James isn't promoting salvation through works. If you read Acts chapter 15 and verses 13 through 19, I mentioned the Jerusalem council where the issue of whether or not people had to do the works of the law to be saved, you will find there in Acts 15, it was James who said, no, the law does not have to be followed in order to have faith in Christ. So James is not contradicting uh, the message that Paul would later write of. Remember, Paul did not write for many, many years. Paul was not even a believer at the point that James wrote this letter. So James isn't in contradiction with what Paul is saying. Uh, what he is doing is he is giving instructions. He is, he is talking to those who have found the way home to heaven through the promised Messiah. And he says, now by the way in which you live, you will help draw others to faith in the Messiah. As you read the book of Acts, remember that in the early church, it says that the believers were going house to house and they were eating with one another, sharing meals. They were taking what they had and they were selling their possessions and sharing with those who were in need. And it says as others watched this happening, they were drawn to the gospel. And it says many were added to their number. 
So it was the advertisement of the gospel going out through the life of the believers. And this is what James was saying. This was a time in the church where many people were losing their homes. They were losing their livelihood. They were losing even their lives. Stephen, the first martyr, happened during this time. And the early church needed to be ministered to in real and practical ways. And as believers did that with one another, it served to draw others to the message of the gospel and point them to the true Messiah, Jesus Christ. And so James was a very practical book written early in the life of the church, telling people how to live in the midst of some very difficult times. This is a message that is relevant to us today. We live in a world that is much like the backdrop of James. It is a dark and a dangerous world for those who are followers of the true God, Jehovah, and especially for those who have come to embrace his son, Jesus Christ, as the Messiah. The news is filled right now with daily barrages of rockets falling in Israel. If you haven't seen what is happening all around the world to believers, they are being persecuted and pushed out of their homes. They are being raped and murdered. They are losing everything in Syria, in Iraq, and in many countries all around the world. Parts of Africa, as we see the kidnappings taking place by the Muslims coming down to the Christian villages. We live in a world that is much like that that James is writing to. So this is a message that has a meaning for us in our world, even here in America where things are not as hard, where persecution is not the same, we see an erosion of the foundations of our faith. We see Christian uh, freedoms that are being taken away. So if you're somebody who's looking at the news or living in, in this world and you're feeling like there's no hope, if you're wondering where is God and what is he doing, James is a book that will help us to see there is hope and there is something going on in the world. God is not absent. God has not forgotten his people. This is why James opens by saying in verses 2 through 4, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Now, when you read the words, consider it all joy, that kind of seems strange given the context I just gave you, doesn't it? I mean, if you were one of these persecuted believers being pushed far out, uh, this is just what you need to hear, right? A grin and bear it type of message telling you, oh, you know, just, just stand up under it. Consider it all joy. But again, what happens is at a face value reading, we don't fully understand what this is saying. You see, this isn't just telling us uh, to buck up under it, but what it's saying is, let me explain what is going on in the midst of the things you're facing. As James writes this, notice it is for those who are born-again believers. He calls them brothers. This is a term of address he will use 15 times throughout the book. This is written to believers, not how do you become a believer, but this is a book saying for those of you who are born again, those of you who are believers, this is what you need to know. When he says consider it all joy, I need to give you the structure of the sentence in the Greek text. Now, if grammar is something that makes you go glassy-eyed, uh, don't check out on me. I'll only do this about a minute, and then I'm going to bring it around and put the cookies on the bottom shelf so it'll be easy to grasp. I'm only telling you the structure so that you understand, because in our English text, the word order is different 
than what we see in the Greek text. In the Greek text, the first word is not consider, that command, that imperative. Rather, it is passin, a word that means all. And so the very first word as James opens this letter is all. Now, it's followed by the word joy, so it reads all joy consider it. Now, some people take that to mean that we are to enjoy everything we face like our trials, but that's not what he's saying here. You see, in the sentence, the word all is playing the part not of the direct object. If it was the direct object, then it would say consider everything joy. But instead, it is an adjective. It's an adjective that is going with joy. So what it really means is not like everything. It means more the meaning of pure. So he's saying pure joy. What he's telling us is the type of joy that we can have. Now, I said I'd put the cookies on the bottom shelf so you can wake up here because this is what it means. James isn't calling us to have an all-encompassing, joyful emotion, that way of feeling during trials. Rather, he's commending the conscious embrace of a Christian understanding to have a thought life that understands through the Christian lens of what God is doing, which will then let us have joy in the trial. Now, let me get it even in more simpler terms. What it is saying is, he's not talking about how one should think about one's circumstances. He's talking about how we should think about one's circumstances, not how one should feel. You see, that's what the word consider The command that is given there, when he tells us that we are to consider it all joy, he's talking about having this thought process. Let me give you an example. In Acts chapter 5, this is where Peter and the other apostles during this time of early persecution were arrested by the Sanhedrin. And you recall that they were taken and they were thrown in prison and then later they were arrested again and they were beaten. And they were told, stop talking about Jesus Christ, but they would not. And in Acts 5.41, it says, when they were released, this is what it says, they went on their way from the presence of the council rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. Then they're rejoicing that they got beaten and thrown in prison. Why? Because they said the gospel. We represent God. We are getting the message out. Paul said the same thing about his experiences in 2 Corinthians 7, 4. There he said, I am overflowing with joy in all our affliction. You see, none of them enjoyed the trials or the suffering. But what they had joy in is knowing the connection to Christ and the outcome it would produce. It's been said that outlook determines the outcome or our attitude determines action. And this is what James is telling us to do. As believers, we are to have an outlook. We are to understand the bigger picture of what is happening. And when that happens, we will be able to have joy in the midst of junk. As he speaks to them and us today, he uses his Greek word for consider. It's hegemai. And it means to consider, to count, to reckon, or evaluate. This is actually a financial term. You'll find it used in Philippians chapter 3. In Philippians chapter 3, you'll remember that when Paul became a Christian, Paul who had everything according to the world's ways, he was part of the Jewish leadership. He was a guy on the up and to the right track in life. 
And as he came to faith in Christ, he said, I considered everything that my whole life had been measured by to that point, and it was garbage. He said, when I evaluated it in light as I added up the way the world is, but then I subtracted it according to the things that God said were really important. He said, the stuff of the world, I realized, was garbage. It was worthless in light of who and what Jesus Christ has done for us. And this is what we as believers are called to have this type of attitude. Warren Wiersbe says, our values determine our evaluations. Our values determine our evaluations. If we value comfort more than character, then trials will upset us. If we value the material and physical more than the spiritual, we will not be able to count it all joy. If we live only for the present and forget the future, the trials will make us bitter and not better. You see, as God gives us these instructions, he himself followed them. As you read Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, it tells us there that Jesus, because of the joy set before him, endured the cross. How could Jesus Christ have joy in the midst of a horrible death as he was crucified? It says because he looked ahead to the glory that would come for him and us who would be saved through his death. And this is what we are called to do, to have this type of joy. If Jesus could endure the suffering of the cross and have joy in it, this is what we can do in the midst of this life as well. As we look at this word that is translated as consider or count, it also has the meaning of to lead or guide. And it was used of the person at the front of a procession that was leading a line forward. And so the idea here is that if we have the leading thought in our life being one of joy, all the other thoughts and emotions will follow in line with it. So as we're talking about what we look at here, the leading thought in our lives should be joy, behind which all our attitudes and actions fall in line. Now, as you hear this word falling in line, you'll notice that in the passage here, we see something else that will fall into. It says the trials we face are described as things we fall into. Now, this isn't the sense of like a hole, like maybe you're walking along and oops, suddenly you fall into a hole that you didn't know was there. It's, it's not that type of meaning. The Greek word that is used here is peripiptipto. Now, that means to fall in with, to encounter, or fall into. And this is a, a rare word. It's only used three times in the entirety of the New Testament. One is in our passage today in James 1-2. It's found as well in Luke 10-30, and that is the parable of the Good Samaritan. And you remember that as Jesus is describing the man who was the victim, it says that, he, that robbers fell upon him, and he was beaten, and he was stripped, and he was left for dead. And in Acts chapter 27 and verse 41, that's a passage that speaks of a ship that was sailing along and suddenly hit a, a sandbar and became shipwrecked. There was this hidden obstacle that it didn't see, and as it hit it, it was wrecked. Now, the meaning, that word peri that begins it is a preposition that means around. And so the idea that we have as we go through this life is that there are trials all around us. Just as the man was surrounded by robbers who fell upon him, you and I go through life and we are surrounded on all sides by trials and tribulations. You see, I talk to people sometimes who tell me, Roger, I thought when I became a Christian, my life would change. 
And it does change. But what they were saying is, I thought all my troubles would go away. I thought everything would be good. I thought there would no longer be any struggles or things. Friends, if you're living your life as a believer, thinking that you were going to have a cruise, you're in for a shock when you become shipwrecked or when you get ambushed by the things in the world. But it's of no surprise because what John 16.33 tells us, Jesus warned his disciples. He said, these things I have spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. Don't miss that. In me you can have peace. Does that mean your life is, is a cruise? No, because this is what Jesus goes on to say. In the world you have tribulation, but take courage, I have overcome the world. Notice it here in verse 2, the text tells us it is not a question of if a Christian will encounter trials. He says when. This isn't if, it is when. It is a guarantee. As James writes this letter, remember that God wasn't sheltering his people. He was scattering them. And he does the same thing with us today. The Christian life is not where we're cocooned and everything is great and God gets us from our holy huddle to heaven and and we have no trouble in the world. What God says is you're going to be running the gauntlet as you go through life. And there is a purpose in that. As he speaks of the trials that come, notice they're described as being manifold. The term means variegated. This isn't speaking in terms of how many hard things will happen. It's speaking of the diversity of hard things that happen. Think about your own life. Do you only suffer one particular type of struggle or are there many? There are struggles in school and at work. There are hard times with finances. There are hard times with our health. There are issues in our home. I mean, the trials are variegated. They are multicolored is what the word literally means. We are surrounded all about and there are all kinds of them. Now, the good news is that while there are many trials and there is a diversity in them, the power and the grace of God can meet every trial that we have. Because that same word is used in Hebrews uh, 2.4 to speak of the many manifestations of God's miraculous power as the gospel went out and was preached. What God said is, for every trial you hit, every kind and color there is, my grace and my power is sufficient to overcome it or to take you through it. There was a man one day who was wanting to buy a, a wall hanging, and he heard there was a master weaver who, who made the most beautiful tapestries that there were. And so he went to this man's shop, and as he walked in to look, he, he saw the master weaver at work. There was a, a loom, and he was working on it. And as the man walked in, he, he looked at it, and he thought, this isn't very pretty. This is a mess. As, as the weaver is working, the, the man was looking at the tapestry. And what he could see were all the threads and the knots and the pattern was hard to discern. And, and, and again, he was standing there thinking, did somebody send me to the wrong place? This, this, this isn't very pretty. The proprietor saw the man, so he got up and he welcomed him into his shop and he invited him to come around. And as he did, and he walked around to the right side of the tapestry, suddenly he saw the beauty of the weaving. I don't know if you've ever looked at a tapestry, but when you look at a tapestry, this is what it looks like. That's what it looks like if you're looking at the wrong side of it, right? If you're looking at the underside of the weaving, this is what you see. It is a mass of threads and knots and things that make no sense to us. But when you look at the right side of the tapestry, this is what it looks like. 
And for us as believers, we need to realize that as we live our lives here upon the earth, we are looking at the underside of the tapestry. As we walk through this world, what we see are the knots and the mess. And what God says is, I have a masterpiece that I am making in your life. And on the right side, on the heavenly side, this is the picture that I'm creating. Look ahead at James 1.12 for a moment. We'll get to that verse next week. But there it says, Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial, because when he has stood the test, when he has been approved by the test, it says he will inherit the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him, those who are his. You see, the picture that God has for us today is right now we are a work in progress. And sometimes all that we see is the mess. We see the knots. We see the hard things. We, we, we look at it and it has no discernible pattern or picture to us. And we say, why, God? Why am I going through this? And what God says is, I am at work. And you are my workmanship. And you are not yet complete. And what James wants us to remember is this process is not yet complete. What James wants us to remember is he wants us to know that there is this process at work. That's why in the verse here, he uses the present participle for the word knowing in verse 3. What he says is when the believer knows that there is a purpose and that we, what we are going through is not wasted, it will help us to be able to have joy in the midst of the junk. Listen to what Hebrews 12:11 tells us. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. As James speaks of the way that God is at work in the life of the believer, he uses another rare Greek word here in verse 3. This Greek word is uh, dokominion, and the word means testing. Now, it means testing with a view not to destroy us. Rather, it is with a view toward approval, as in testing the genuineness of an article. Now, this word is only used two times in the entire New Testament. Here in James 1.3 and again in 1 Peter 1.7. Now, that little notation I have at the bottom, O-T-L-X-X, that means the Old Testament Septuagint. Because as the Hebrews were being spread around and persecuted, the, the Hebrew language was being uh, choked off. And so the, the Old Testament was written into Greek. Originally, it was written in Hebrew and Aramaic, but it was then translated into the Greek language. And we find this same word, dokuminion, twice in the Old Testament. Once in Psalm 11.7 and again in Proverbs 27.21. Again, it's a very rare word. In the entirety of the Bible, it is only found four times. And every time that it is used, it speaks of the refining process where you take precious metal like silver or gold And it is put into the fire. You don't put it into the fire to destroy it. You put it into the fire to refine it, to purify it, to burn off the dross and the impurities, to make the metal uh, precious. And this is what trials, this is what testing in the life of a believer does. It is not to destroy us or to disprove our faith. Rather, it is to improve our faith, to raise the value to burn away the things in our life that don't belong, 
the sin, to burn away the bonds that are holding us to the things in the world. Just as Paul had to come to the point where he realized the stuff I've been spending my life pursuing is worthless. For us, as we go through the fire, we begin to realize what is really important, what our life should really be about. If you read the book of Job, you'll find a man who went through unimaginable sets of trials. And rather than becoming bitter, this is what Job said in Job 23.10. But God knows the way I take, and when he has tried me, I shall come forth as gold. You see, Job understood the process as he got further into understanding who God was and what he was doing. And he said, this isn't to destroy me, it's to refine me. And I will come forth as gold. The way that an ancient goldsmith would, would uh, test the purity of gold, they didn't have all the stuff we have today. And so what he would do is as he put the ore into the fire and as it became molten metal and as the things were being burned off, he would watch it. And when he could see his face reflected in the metal, he knew it was ready to come out of the fire. And that's what God does with us as Christians. As we go through the fire, God is watching us. He has his hand on the thermostat, and he will not leave us in it any longer than we need. But he is watching to see whether or not we truly reflect the face of his son, Jesus Christ. Have you read Romans 8, 28 uh, 28 through 29? It says, and we know that in all things God works together for the good works together for the good of those who love God to those who have been called according to his purpose. What is his purpose? Well, we find it right there in verse 29 where it says, for whom he foreknew he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. Do you see what God does with us? As we go through life and we go through the hard things, as we are in the refining fire, God says the purpose is so that we will reflect his son, so that we will be conformed, pushed into, pressed into the mold, so that we will look like Christ. This is why we can have joy in the midst of the junk. When we look ahead to the purpose, when we remember there is a right side to the knotted mess that we are looking at in this world, when we remember that God is at work making us a masterpiece, it will help us to have joy in the midst of the junk. Now, another benefit of what the believer goes through is described in verse 3. There it says, the testing of your faith will produce endurance. This word endurance is hopomone. And it means patience, fortitude, steadfastness. It speaks of endurance or perseverance. Now, you see that word hupomone, it's a compound word. Hupo means under. And mone comes from the root word minnow, which means to abide or remain. So it literally means to remain under. And what it's speaking of here is just as you would pile a weightlifter will pile weights upon a bar and they'll get under it and they'll push. You know, you can't tell from me, but, you know, you're, you, you know, work out. And as you stay under the weight, as you endure it, what happens to you? You build muscles. One of the things I do like to do is backpack. And to go backpack in the mountains, you get ready for a trip by carrying around a backpack and increasing the amount of weight you're carrying and the the length of the trips you're taking. So when you get up around the tree line at twelve or 13,000 feet, you know, and you're worn out, you're able to enjoy the trip because you've been building up endurance. 
Just as an athlete will train so they develop their skills or their, their muscle memory and the other things that are needed to perform at a high level. This is the meaning of the word. As Christians, we are to be hupomone. We are to be uh, practicing and remaining under the hard things. Because God says, as we go through these things, he is building us. He is growing us. He is maturing us. And these are the things that help us to have joy in the midst of the junk. There was a little boy one day who was with his father, and they were walking through a grocery store. And uh, the father had just simply grabbed one of those hand baskets, and the little boy was carrying it, and he's, he's walking behind his dad. And his dad is periodically grabbing things off the shelf and putting it in this basket. Now, there was a woman walking down the same aisle watching this. And as she saw this little boy beginning to have more and more things loaded down in this basket, she started to feel sorry for him. And she kind of came up alongside him and she said, she said, son, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry you're carrying such a heavy load. You know, I don't, you know, it, it, are, are you okay? And the little boy just looked up at her and smiled and she said, it's okay, ma'am. My father knows how much I can carry. And friends, it's the same thing with us. There are times we're in the fire. There are times we are under the load and we're wondering, has God forgotten me? Does God know what I'm going through? And what we need to remember is that God, our heavenly father, knows how much we can handle. He's not here to break us as he tests us. Remember, he's here to develop us. And he will stay with us and he will keep his hand on the thermostat and he will keep us in the fire as long as is needed in order to make us pure where we reflect the image of his son as he creates the masterpiece. Second Corinthians four seventeen through 18 tells us, For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond, far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are, not, which are seen are temporal. That means passing. But the things which are not seen are eternal. Remember that picture of the tapestry. We are on the underside and we can't see fully the masterpiece that God is creating. As James writes what God has for us, he says that by remaining under the load, by remaining in the fire, it will produce perseverance. Now, this is only one of the benefits for the believer because the greater benefit is the maturity. In verse 4, James uses two different words for the maturity of a believer. One is the word teleos. This word means perfect or finished. It speaks ultimately of the sinless perfection that a believer has in heaven. Now, it is not saying that for you and I, as we live our lives here on this earth, that we will become perfect. In fact, when we get to James chapter 3 and verse 2, that same word teleos is found, and there it says, for we all stumble in many ways. In other words, we're still sinning. We're still making mistakes. We will not be sinless until we get to heaven. But as we go through this life, God's goal is that we sin less and less as we go through life. That is the idea of this maturity that is being developed in us. And friends, I want you to make note of this because this is what the book of James is really all about. You see, the reason people get into trouble in understanding and interpreting the book of James is they think it's all about works. Works is simply a side, side, a side sub sub subject 
It is a sub-subject in the book of James. The real message of James is maturity. As we go through the book of James, this word teleos will be found here in 1.4, in 1.17, in 1.25, in 2.22, and in 3.2. The message of James is about the maturity of a believer. And the maturity of a believer is seen in the way that he or she lives their life. It is about having a life that reflects Christ, as we've already talked about. It is about having a life that demonstrates our life through the way that we serve others, through the way that we live our life. As the bad things are burned away and as the the things that belong are demonstrated in our life. James is a word, uh, James speaks of our maturity. He not only uses teleos, but he uses another Greek word. This one is holokleros. Now, this is an extremely rare word. This word means complete. It means perfected all over, fully developed in every part. Literally, the meaning of this word is um, well-rounded. You see, holo, that that first word is there, speaks of... um, the, the totality of our works. It means whole. Kleros means a part. So it's a compound word that means perfected all over or fully developed. What James is saying here is the goal for us as Christians is not to be big-headed believers. You may be sitting here in this sermon going, wow, I'm getting all these Greek words. I'm getting all this knowledge. That's not the goal, brothers and sisters. The goal is not for us to walk around and say, my head's bigger than yours. I know more about the Bible than that Christian. What God says the goal is, is that like a sponge that is soaking up all of these things, we are then to go out in the world and squeeze it out. God doesn't want big-headed Bible believers that all they have is a lot of knowledge anymore than he wants those who are huge-hearted people that are all about social justice and have no truth connected to what they're doing. What God says is we are to be well-rounded, complete, the whole package. We are to know God and know his word and be living it out in the world so that others can then come to know God. And that is the message of the book of James. It is about our maturity as a believer. And a big part of our growth of being mature, balanced, and grown up comes through the times of testing that we face Just as a person has to remain under the load and go through the discipline of working out in order to get the benefit of bigger muscles or greater endurance, we as believers need to do the same thing when it comes to our life. There's the old saying, no pain, no gain. As believers, it applies to us spiritually speaking as well. Now, the problem is that as people, what's our natural inclination? Do you like pain? Anybody here like pain? I don't. Whenever I'm faced with a painful or a hard situation, what do we want to do? We want to get out from under it. We want to short cycle the process. We want to escape it. And by doing so, what we do is we short circuit the work of God. We, we, we stop what he is trying to accomplish in our life. This is why in verse four, one of the commands that is given to us is that we are to let it happen. Look at verse four. It says, and let endurance have its perfect result. You see, we have to cooperate with God as he develops our character. Romans 12 talks to us about making our bodies, our lives, a living sacrifice, right? As we put it on the altar. You know what the problem with a living sacrifice is? It crawls off the altar, doesn't it? And what God says is we are to let 
God work in our lives. We are not to short cycle the process of what his purpose is in our life. There was a man who was watching a a butterfly emerge from a cocoon. And as he watched this, this butterfly coming out and the struggling that was taking place, it was this long, slow process, and he could see the struggles taking place. And he thought, I'm going to help this butterfly. And he took out a, a pin knife that he had in his pocket, a really sharp knife, and, and he opened it, and he very carefully cut through the edge of the cocoon where the opening was and where this butterfly was coming out. And as he, opened, as he made the opening bigger, the butterfly very quickly emerged from the cocoon. And the man smiled as he watched this thing come out and thought, boy, this is great. And it sat on the edge of the cocoon. But as he looked at it, uh, the thing just kind of hung on there. And it was shaking and it was bloated and the wings were all shriveled. And it was, it was trying to move its wings and it was, you know, trying to move around. And eventually the thing, just in exhaustion, fell off the cocoon on the ground and it died. Now the man, as he saw this and, and this bloated, shriveled, winged body of this butterfly thought this thing something was wrong with it there was some deformity and he had a friend who was a specialist and and a scientist with insects so he picks this thing up and and he takes it to his friend and he shows it to him and he he explains the process i saw this thing hatching and i went to help it and and it came out and it looked like this and you know what what kind of what was wrong with it what's the deformity here and the scientist as he looked at the butterfly and heard the story said well There was nothing wrong with the butterfly. The problem was what you did. He said, you see, the way that God has designed the process for this butterfly is that as it emerges out of the cocoon, the struggle and the forcing and coming through, it forces the fluid out of the body into the shriveled wings which help it to expand and the struggle strengthens it. And that's what makes the butterfly to be able to fly. And he said, by by cutting short the struggle, you crippled it and you ultimately killed it. How many of us do that with the process that God is trying to do in our lives? As parents, we know what happens when we try to cocoon our kids and protect them from everything that is hard. Eventually, they get out into the world and they're unequipped and unprepared to be able to make right and good decisions. And it's the same thing with us as believers. If we want to get out from under the struggle, if we want to short-cycle the process, uh, we are ultimately crippling the work of God in our life. And we will not ever fully develop into what God intends for us. As you look at your life today and as you look at what you're going through, the process of pain and struggle in our own lives is not fun. But when we understand the greater purpose of what God is doing as he seeks to make us mature men and women, as he seeks to prepare us to be used for choice works in this world, he says there is a process that I am taking you through and you are to let it happen and you are to hold up under it, not enjoying the trials, but you can have joy in the junk when you recognize what I am doing and know the greater purpose of what we are facing. We need to know that these tough times are our best opportunities to be transformed. As we come to the communion table today, we are being reminded of what God did for us. As I talked about in Hebrews 12 too, there it tells us that we are to fix our eyes on the perfecter of our faith. 
We are to fix our eyes upon Jesus Christ, who for the joy of the cross, it said, he endured what he was facing so that he could save us. This table before us, the elements we are about to partake of, remind us of the sacrifice of God's son, the one who himself went through a very hard process. But without the cross, there would be no crown for Christ. The Bible tells us that because of what Jesus went through, he has been elevated to the highest place, that every name, uh, that every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth at the name of Jesus Christ. That because of the cross, the crown, the highest place of glory is for Jesus Christ because of what he did to save us. And as we come to this table today, we are reminded of his willingness to go through the fire, to give his very life to save us. As the men pass the elements in a moment, you're going to have a piece of bread representing his body. His body that was the sacrifice on the cross, the cup represents his blood that was spilled to wash away our sins. And what God calls us to do today is to be thankful to be thankful for Jesus and his sacrifice and to even be thankful in the midst of the messes that we go through knowing the greater purpose that God has for us. So as you take and hold these elements, I want you to think about your life, to think about what Jesus did and maybe to think about the hard things you're going through right now and to have joy, to consider it all joy, as Jesus says, to have pure joy understanding the greater process that God is taking you through and what he is trying to accomplish. Now, as James tells us later, we all stumble in many ways. Many of us have sinned this week, this past month. We've got mistakes we've made. And we need to use this time as well just to say to God, I'm sorry. I'm sorry I got off the path. I'm sorry I did some things that were not honoring to you. And the Bible says when we confess our sins, he's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So you don't have to come groveling or in shame. You come and simply say, God, I am nailing this sin to the cross today. Thank you for your forgiveness. And friends, if you are here today and you've never come to faith in Jesus Christ, if you've been trying to work your way to God, trying to be good enough to get to God, as we will see as we go through James, you cannot do that. It is only through the finished work of Jesus Christ, the one who died for you and me, that we are saved. So if you've never turned to him in faith, never accepted his death as your payment, I invite you to take the elements today and to say, God, thank you for your great gift of new life. Today, I'm turning my life over to you. I'm making you the Lord of my life. Then will you serve us? And for the rest of us, let's use this time to talk to God in prayer.
we hold in our hands a piece of bread representing the body of Christ. As we think of the, the pain and suffering of this world, we read in the book of Isaiah how he had no stately form, how he would be pierced through for our transgressions, how he would be beaten, bloodied. Jesus was a man acquainted with sufferings and grief, the scripture tells us. And as God, he did it in order to save us and to help us share in his glory one day in heaven, the body of Jesus seated in remembrance of him. And here we hold a cup, a cup of juice that represents his blood, blood that ran out as he was nailed to the cross, as he was pierced through in his side, as he had a crown of thorns hammered into his head, all the things that he suffered. And in the midst of all of that, as Hebrews tells us, he endured the cross with joy, knowing that what it would produce, a place in heaven for you and me who have received him as our Savior, the blood of Jesus Christ, drink it in remembrance of him. You join me, please, as we close in prayer. Lord God, we thank you for this message that you had James write for us 2,000 years ago, telling us how we can have joy in the midst of the junk that we face in our lives. Father, we thank you that your grace is sufficient for all that we face. And would we be those who cling to you, who lean hard into you as we go through the storms of life, knowing that through it you are producing perseverance, endurance, and maturity in our lives so that we can better be used by you as our lives reflect Jesus to others who are still lost in the storm. So send us out now, Lord, into the world to be those who live for you and point others to the place where they too can find salvation and safety in the midst of the harbor, in the midst of the storms we face. We pray these things in the name of our precious Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Go in peace to love and serve the Lord.